listening to the W Chat Podcast with Drs. Nicole Lowe and Stephanie Edmonds, and this is episode 14, Pelvic Floor with Dr. Sandy Tenfeld. and welcome to WChat. Today we are interviewing Sandy Tenfeld, our first nurse practitioner, regarding her work with counseling about pelvic floor issues. Pelvic floor concerns was a topic that women actually frequently brought up in our market research as something they felt was not always adequately addressed by their providers, with some providers just saying that it was an artifact of giving birth and there's nothing that can be done. Well, Sandy is here to give us more light on this sensitive topic for women, and we are excited. We would also like to thank our listeners who have been leaving us positive ratings on iTunes and encourage you to also check out our Patreon page to become a patron of the WChat podcast so that we can keep recording. You can get more information on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So Sandy, well, thank you for joining us today. So we always start our podcast out by giving our listeners a little background about who we're speaking with. So if you could please talk a little bit about yourself. So tell our listeners about your background, your education and training and your current work. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole and Stephanie. I am delighted to be here today. And I, uh, I started life as a labor and delivery nurse. And I always knew that I wanted to work in women's health. Uh, while I was a labor and delivery nurse, I was caring for the very wealthy in the city of Chicago, as well as the very poor in the inner city. So it was a pretty fantastic time for me to explore, you know, all the work that was being done in women's health and where I was really called to serve. I returned to become a women's health nurse practitioner, and I came to Loyola University for that. And it has a big mission with social justice, which is pretty exciting for me. After I finished my master's, I worked in a federally qualified health center in the inner city, taking care of low-income women. And that's when I began to realize how important our role as advanced practice nurses are in terms of being able to educate our patients, being able to teach about what the body is capable of. And I was able to follow women throughout their prenatal care and postpartum to see the impact of what pregnancy and delivery did to the body. And in all honesty, as a new grad working in a very busy clinic, I recognized that the counseling that we were doing in that immediate postpartum time was often shortchanged. We had so much information to cover in such a short amount of time that I never felt as adequately prepared to give that anticipatory guidance that I needed to do. But I recognized that that need was there and that women needed the education about their bodies. I returned to graduate school after I had my first baby to work on my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I actually did my uh, initial dissertation work was looking at the predictors of breastfeeding exclusivity and duration in low-income women that go to WIC. So still postpartum focused, still very interested in women's health issues, but focusing more on the upper part of the body as opposed to the lower part of the body. While I was in my doctoral program, I really missed clinical patient care. So for two years, I worked as a clinician in a colorectal clinic. Now, it's kind of interesting. How does a women's health NP wind up in colorectal? But I had a a really insightful uh, department chair at the time, actually the director of the midwifery and, and women's health NP program where I was teaching. And she is a midwife and her area of research was on shoulder dystocia and the impact on the pelvic floor after birth. And she had been approached by the colorectal team because they wanted an advanced practice nurse to work in their clinic. Now, this 
director of mine was a midwife. And she said, you know, she practiced clinically. She really wanted to catch babies. She did not want to work in an out-practice colorectal clinic, but she thought it was an excellent job for a women's health NP. So she approached me and said, you know, I know you want to get back into clinical patient care. Here's an opportunity to work with pelvic floor. Are you interested in this? So I uh, took the challenge and learned a lot about the pelvic floor from the aspect of colorectal, but also dealing with, you know, sexual health, pelvic floor dysfunction. I established a really strong network of people within uh, my community who were knowledgeable about pelvic floor issues. And I was able to integrate that into the care that I was providing for my patients. Along the way, I recognized that no one was talking about sexual health. And that was one of the areas that I knew that I wanted to improve my skill. So after I finished my PhD, I became an assistant professor at Loyola University Chicago. So I returned to my alma mater. I began directing the Women's Health Nurse Practitioner Program and trying to figure out my own trajectory for my research. I had the good fortune of being able to network and collaborate with an established team of pelvic floor researchers, and this time within the world of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is also known as urogynecology. They've come up with this new long title that we all have to, the, the new mouthful of female pelvic medicine. But they had a fabulous team of surgeons who were looking at uh, clinical issues related to patient care and improving uh, women's health. And as an advanced practice nurse, I was trying to understand what my contribution to this work could be. So I also went through a program to become a certified yoga instructor. My first research studies were looking at the effect of yoga for women with urgency urinary incontinence, a problem that is bothersome for many women who struggle with pelvic floor dysfunction. And I look at it through the lens of psychoneuroimmunology, so how the mind and the body are connected. Not just does yoga work, but how does yoga work? So it got very sciencey, and I was looking at pro-inflammatory cytokines and heart rate variability to understand more about sympathovagal balance. And my preliminary data on that shows that you know yoga can be very helpful for women to reduce the burden of symptoms uh, for urgency urinary incontinence. It is not going to be a standalone treatment, but it can be a nice complement to the work that they're doing through their, you know, either with pelvic floor physical therapists or medication. Once I finished that study and part of my career, I wanted to go back and learn more about sexual health. So I returned to the University of uh, Michigan in Ann Arbor to become a sexual counselor. Now, sexual counseling is the healthcare component to sexual therapy. So at Michigan's program, many of my colleagues in this program were sexual therapists. So they were marriage and family therapists or PsyDs psychotherapists who are coming back to add that sexual health component. Likewise, for me as an advanced practice nurse, I wanted to have that healthcare component, which allowed me to have more information about how to address sexual health needs, particularly for women with pelvic floor dysfunction. After I finished that part of my training, I had the good fortune of working in a sexual health clinic housed within urology. So this was a private practice urology group housed within or that had a sexual health program in it. And it was actually run by an advanced practice nurse, which was pretty fantastic. Jeff Alba, who's my partner in crime, had 20 plus years experience in urology and started up this clinic and invested in me as a new clinician coming into his practice. And when I initially started there, you know, I had asked Jeff who was working with women and he said, nobody, we need you, will you come? So I went to the urology clinic and it was a wonderful learning experience, but because they had so many male patients who were struggling with erectile dysfunction or the impact of prostate cancer, 
I spent much of my time in those two years working with men, and I really missed being in women's health. So after my two years there, I've actually returned to my federally qualified health center and am now currently practicing primary care and in women's health. And I brought all this wealth of knowledge uh, that I have learned as a professional student back into my delivery of care for these low-income women who may not have the resources that other individuals can have. I have also received funding. I, I completed a study just recently with Dr. Colleen Fitzgerald, who's a physiatrist and specializes in pelvic floor dysfunction, looking at postpartum pelvic girdle pain and how that affects sexual function. So that is the current area that I'm working on, and we're just writing up that manuscript now and and starting to disseminate that information. Well, it's really exciting to have our first nurse practitioner on, and especially someone who I don't know how many educational tracks yeah. you mentioned in your, I lost count. Yeah. So a very well-educated nurse practitioner with a lot of also clinical experience and research. So it's really exciting to have you on and get a little bit of this nursing perspective that Nicole and I obviously like as well. Thank you. So we also like to ask our guests another question about what informs your perspective or your practice. So why do you do what you do? And what's most valuable to you? Or what is your philosophy of practice? Oh, what a great question. And thank you. Yeah, I am a professional student. So I think that one of the things that most excites me and is also daunting, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I, I, the more I study, the more I realize that there's a whole world of things that I don't know. And the driving force behind my practice is essentially that I want to be a valuable resource for the women that I am privileged to provide care for. So I am constantly trying to figure out what I know and what I don't know and sharing this knowledge with my students, with the women that I care for and recognizing that there's so much that we need to learn and there's so many answers that we don't have. And often in healthcare, when you know we don't have strong evidence to support the work that we're doing, women get dismissed or you know their concerns or questions are discounted and i know as you know as a woman who's had three babies it's kind of interesting once i realized that when i was doing my dissertation research on breastfeeding i was pregnant or breastfeeding my entire phd program and once i finished breastfeeding and segued into pelvic floor it made sense to me because you've got to pick something that you're passionate about and i had just had three vaginal births my largest baby was 9 pounds 3 ounces and i thought oh dear now i need to start looking at pelvic floor issues so that I can improve the care that we give to women. So some of this is personal and some of this is really guided by the fact that I didn't feel as well prepared as a clinician to provide the information and to talk about the sensitive topics that we need to be able to ask for my patients. And I really think that we need to be champions for women and advocate for better answers and trying to understand what evidence is out there to support the the questions that we ask, the interventions that we attempt, and that anticipatory guidance that I feel that, especially in that postpartum period, you know, the focus has been 
on how the mother is feeling at postpartum, perhaps checking her breastfeeding status and making sure that her fundus is returned to the right size and the lochia is clearing up and any perineal incisions are healing. And then we focus on how the baby is doing and how she's coping and adapting. And all that is wonderful. But the idea of the physical changes that happen to women in pregnancy and our understanding of how that healing process takes place over time and being able to really bear witness to the miraculous ability of a woman's body to carry a pregnancy to term or, or to give birth, whether it's through cesarean birth or a vaginal delivery, it's pretty extraordinary. And I felt, and I still feel like there's so much that we need to understand in terms of what happens physically, psychologically, emotionally to a woman during this process, and how can we help her be as healthy as she can be as she heals and recovers and returns to whatever her state of normal is post-birth. So seriously, when you talk, it makes me kind of want to be a nurse practitioner. (laughs) I know, me too. (laughs) My husband would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) And then then I was going to follow up with, like, don't tell my husband that. (laughs) I say that all the time, like almost every day, though. But now, especially. It's so interesting because as, you know, and I direct the Women's Health Nurse Practitioner Program. So all of these tips that I've learned in my 20 years of being an NP and trying to figure out, you know, I am still learning. It's okay to be questioning. It's okay to have goals in terms of trying to figure out how to incorporate new physical exam techniques. I did not know how to do a really thorough assessment of the pelvic floor until I collaborated with my physician on this last study. I mean, I knew where pelvic floor muscles were, but it was really nice to be able to standardize my exam to my physician colleague who is a pelvic floor expert so that now I can incorporate that into my annual exams and into my postpartum checks so that I can understand what's going on for women and where they might have some defects or some areas that need improvement and how I can refer them to pelvic floor physical therapists or to a specific pelvic floor clinic and what can be done on the front line by somebody like me and what needs more expert attention. Yeah, I just love how you have paired what I call nerd nursing, the research part with the practical part. And I just, I just love it. Oh, good. Yeah. I I, I don't know how to do it any differently. I think that we are all on this evidence-based kick and it's only going to improve the care that we're able to develop or to deliver. Yes. Okay. So before I get into the next part, Sandy, I think, I mean, you talked quite extensively about the work you've done with pelvic floor issues. Do you have more to add to that? Well, I think that, you know, one thing I want to be clear on is that I have not worked in a female pelvic medicine clinic. I have amazing colleagues who do this day in and day out, and they see the complex cases. And one of the things that I've recognized as a clinician is that so many women struggle with pelvic floor issues and they are reluctant to discuss them with their healthcare provider. And unless they are directly asked about their function, whether it's in terms of their ability to urinate or to defecate or to have pleasurable sex, they rarely offer this information. So as clinicians, we need to be better about asking the right questions And I feel like that is something that I'm much more comfortable doing now with my training. But once I open the door, I am the person who can then refer them to extra special help. So there are advanced practice nurses that are out there that are doing great things in pelvic floor clinics. And that's beyond the scope of what I do as an APN in a primary care clinic. So I don't want to ever pretend like I'm the expert on this. I've got lots of good questions and lots of good research ideas, but I definitely have colleagues that are more skilled 
at the delivery of pelvic floor specific care than what I'm doing. Nope, that's that's admirable. Admirable. Like we said, today we're going to talk about pelvic floor issues, so let's jump right in. And we're going to jump in with a scenario that we actually received from our market research. And you have touched on this a little bit during this episode, but also when we talked on the phone, you talked about this need to recalibrate the six-week postpartum check. And in our market research, we asked women to tell me about a time when you have been disappointed or upset with sexual and or reproductive care that you've received. And these were two responses. These are from two different women. And I quote, At my six-week postpartum visit, I came in very upset because the day before I felt something weird shift or pop in my vagina. And upon taking a look, I could see a visible bulge. When I spoke to my doctor about it, she blew it off. Said I quote-unquote, barely had a prolapsed bladder and it was just par for the course with childbirth. I had to actively seek out my own additional care, which has helped a ton. Another woman stated... At my first postpartum visit, I told my doctor that I was concerned that I have a rectocele, which I confirmed that I do. He said, quote, it's really unfortunate what birth does to that part of the body. I really love him as my gynecologist otherwise, but that was pretty hurtful comment. It made me feel ashamed. So in your opinion, why do you think some providers don't offer resources to address public floor concerns or just brush it off as a consequence of giving birth? Yeah, that's a great question. I really feel that in the current state of healthcare, we don't allow enough time for this education piece or the anticipatory guidance. And I know that many clinicians are reluctant to have these discussions because they feel like there's nothing that they can do. They don't have the education. They don't have the skill set. They don't have the confidence in their referrals to be able to provide additional resources for women who may be struggling. And in all honesty, the state of our science, we haven't had great longitudinal studies that look at pelvic floor dysfunction post-birth. And there's some nice uh, research that's been coming out looking at urinary incontinence and whether or not having a, a vaginal birth compared to an elective cesarean birth can impact that. But the other musculoskeletal changes that women struggle with are often just dismissed as consequences of carrying a pregnancy or delivering a baby. And that's unfortunate because many women are left with questions and feel as if their issues are not being adequately addressed. So I think it definitely is something that we need to work with our postpartum providers to be able to incorporate this key aspect of talking to women about the changes that happen in their body. And I don't disagree with that gynecologist who says, yeah, you know, birth, this is, it is unfortunate what happens. You know, your body does change, but it's miraculous that it was able to do this. And it's pretty incredible that we were able to accommodate passing a bowling ball through the keyhole. So there are definite changes that happen, but let's be proactive and talk about what we can do from a physical therapy standpoint, or if there are other uh, resources available to help women address these issues instead of just saying, oh, this is normal. Maybe you'll get better. Good luck with that. See you in a year. So with these women, you said that you would talk to them about expectations after childbirth and how it's miraculous that their body could do this. How would you minimize any feelings of shame or embarrassment a woman might have about this issue? Oh, yeah. So um, many women, this is, you know, this is a very private part, even though post-birth, a lot of the privacy issues we tend to think go out the window because your care provider is so intimately involved with that part of your anatomy. However, it's still very sensitive topics to approach. And we need to be able to normalize the idea that there are changes that happen in the pelvic floor and many women experience 
problems with incontinence or prolapse or constipation or hemorrhoids or painful sex, whatever that topic might be that is inherently a taboo topic for many people, as healthcare providers, we really need to take the initiative and start the conversation and normalize it by saying, many of my women who have had a vaginal delivery or carried a pregnancy and even with cesarean birth may struggle with these issues post-birth. Is this a problem for you? You know, instead of coming out in a judgmental way of phrasing the question, I think it's important to normalize the issue so that we can get the best possible answers and establish that trust and confidentiality within our patients so that they know that we are looking out for their best interest and trying to ask the sensitive questions so that we can provide information, referral, and help as necessary. So you talk about normalizing and asking these questions. Do you have a sort of standard set of questions that you ask all of your patients when it comes to assessing pelvic floor issues? And if so, can you share what those questions are? There are great questions when you do a review of systems. Okay, so when you get to the genitourinary section, asking absolutely every patient, when I'm doing an annual exam, when I'm doing a new pregnancy physical exam, I want to establish a baseline so that I know what the woman is currently experiencing. And that means asking everybody about incontinence. Do you leak urine when you cough or sneeze? Do you have symptoms of urgency where you think, oh my gosh, I've got to go to the bathroom? Are you able to make it to the bathroom on time? Have you ever had any leaking related to this? Do you feel a bulge in your vagina? And asking it in a way that doesn't come off as judgmental, but more of a, these are questions that I ask all women about their bodies. Because if you don't ask the question, they're reluctant to volunteer this information. And I think establishing a baseline at the beginning of pregnancy will help you understand what changes happen over time. So many women in pregnancy, due to the introduction of a prenatal vitamin that has iron, or if we're supplementing with iron, changes in the diet, the compression of the colon, from the fetus as it grows, they struggle with problems with constipation. And if you don't ask questions about their bowel pattern prior to pregnancy or at the early parts of pregnancy where this may not be as big of an issue, when they're really struggling with it in late-term pregnancy or postpartum, you know, you don't get an impact of how big of a deal this is for someone. And unless you ask the questions, you can't provide some suggestions on improvement or referral for them. I'm a really good history taker. Like, I can ask questions all day long. I may not be the best diagnostician, but asking the right questions will allow you to guide your physical, to guide your assessment, to guide your plan. So, and I encourage all providers to work on their own level of comfort with asking those questions. And sometimes you need to practice so that it comes off without the anxiety that might normally be attached to that. Many of the women at the six-week postpartum check have not resumed sexual activity, so they have no idea what sexual intercourse is going to be like for them. And instead of just saying, have you resumed sex postpartum? If women say no, that often is where the conversation ends. And we don't give them the anticipatory guidance of, wow, then when you do try, this may feel differently, or you may need to use a lubricant, or you may need to make sure that you can communicate with your partner in terms of how you are feeling. And are you able to relax and enjoy sex? Or are you having pain? Are you having issues? You know, are you struggling with issues with incontinence that makes you more reluctant to be physically intimate with your partner? These are important 
important questions that we can ask so that women recognize that, again, if there's a normalization, that this is a change that can happen. And asking the right questions is going to definitely help you establish your plan and work with somebody a little bit differently than if you just say, oh, you're not having sex? Okay. What are you going to use for birth control if and when you do have sex? I think you make two really interesting points. One is that you do this even when women become pregnant or at an annual exam, that this isn't something that you just reserve for the postpartum visit so that you can get a baseline. So I think that's a really interesting point and something that we all need to think about doing. And then number two, you talked about how if you don't bring up these questions, women likely won't. And this is something that, and Stephanie can attest to, that we have seen within our other episodes talking about sensitive issues with either rural women or teenagers, and even in our market research where we had women say that I've been sexually assaulted, but... I've never been asked if I've been assaulted and I'm too embarrassed to bring it up so I don't say anything. And so it's interesting that you too talk about that even though we have this really intimate relationship really with our providers, especially if they were the ones who delivered our child, that you still feel uncomfortable or women still feel uncomfortable and that you still need to ask these questions despite having this relationship with each other. So I think those are two interesting things to really think about. Yeah, for sure. And I ask all of my patients, are you having sex with men or women or both? And just being able to have that roll off my tongue very easily is, you know, and I ask everybody, I ask everybody because you don't want to assume. And I ask about intimate partner violence and about, has anybody ever forced you to do anything against your will sexually to everybody? Because you cannot, all of these questions, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, now I'm back in a, in a federally qualified health center taking care of low-income women. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what language you speak. These are issues that impact women. And as clinicians, we need to be comfortable asking the right questions and not being, not making assumptions based on any on anything. We need to have a standardized script, almost like you said, in terms of what questions need to be asked so that we can provide the best possible care. Just following up on some of those questions that you suggested related to incontinence and constipation, could you provide our listeners how you ask about sex? So you you mentioned about sex partners, but how do you ask, kind of get a baseline of, of their sexual health? Yeah, so it's really interesting. When I when I went through my master's program here at Loyola, we had a wonderful sexual therapist who's doing some great work with couples at Loyola, and she provided some information for us as new clinicians in my master's program. So when I came out as a new nurse practitioner, I was convinced that I was going to ask absolutely all of my patients about how their sexual health was and whether or not they were able to have an orgasm. And then in my transition as a new NP, when we have 15 minutes to see a patient and and we've got to cover so many other questions. And I had a really challenging time trying to explain what an orgasm was in English, let alone in Spanish. So those are words that, I mean, I, I oh, I've got so many fun stories. I had a 14-year-old patient who came in as a same-day appointment or a walk-in. And she was interested, you know, she came in for vaginal discharge. She was newly sexually active with a boyfriend, not using condoms, not using contraception. So we had a lot of things to talk about. And this dear girl, I swear, it was like 4.45, clinic was almost done. She wanted to know what was the big deal about this. What is sex about? Because we talked, if you're not having sex to get pregnant, 
you're certainly not having sex so that you can get a sexually transmitted infection. Why are you doing this? What is, what can you get out of sex? How do you find pleasure? So I spent a good amount of time sitting down and explaining normal female anatomy and the pleasure that can be gotten from sex and encouraging a 14-year-old to figure out her own body and understand what she liked so she would be able to communicate this with her sexual partner. And in my heart of hearts, I mean, there's part of me that's like, okay, but we need to talk about birth control and we need to make sure she has condoms. And all of that stuff does get done. But being able to empower women to make smart decisions about their sexual health and understand both the consequences as well as the pleasure that can be received from being sexually active, I think it's important to be able to take that time. And depending on how much of my visit can focus on it. When I was in the sexual health clinic, I had the luxury of having an hour-long appointment with each of my patients. In my busy community health center, I see between 20 and 25 patients a day. So my ability to sit and have longer conversations with my patients based on my productivity has definitely been hampered. So trying to find a way to incorporate these questions. I do a lot of talking and teaching simultaneously. I can incorporate a lot of teaching when I'm doing the physical exam. I think I'm empowering women to learn about their body as I'm explaining, you know, the parts of the anatomy that I'm that I'm looking at and explaining uh, what I'm doing during the pelvic exam, especially when I'm assessing the strength of the pelvic floor muscles and how they can be helpful to increase the when when women have better control of their pelvic floor muscles, there's more blood flow that comes to the genitals. There's more sensation that can happen during sex. It also is supportive. Uh, musculature for the urethra to minimize the impact of incontinence and to help support the pelvic floor muscles to minimize prolapse. So there's work that can be done simultaneously while we're teaching and talking and, and trying to fit everything that we want to do as good clinicians into the short amount of time of our productivity standards. But I think getting familiar with your questions and trying to allow space and a safe environment for people to be able to share their sexual health concerns is important. And whether or not you know, I'm able to elicit if everybody's able to have an orgasm and explain what an orgasm is or just address the needs that women have in terms of their sexual health. Are they able to relax and enjoy it? Maybe enough of a question to ask rather than specifically focusing on the ability to climax. You say that you like sort of have trouble explaining what an orgasm is in English, let alone in other languages. So could you sort of give our listeners a tidbit on how you do explain what an orgasm is to patients who might not understand that word? That's great. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am still struggling with that. I'm pulling up an actual definition. I've got a wonderful PowerPoint that I've been able to present at the at the Iwan conference. And I present to the to the nurse practitioners in my clinic and, and other schools around town when I'm talking about sexual health. But the definition, there was a 2004 committee concerning the disorders of orgasm in women. The definition of orgasm is a variable transient peak sensation of consciousness usually accompanied by involuntary rhythmic contractions of the pelvic striated circumvaginal musculature, often with concomitant uterine and anal contractions, and myotonia that resolves in the sexually induced vasocongestion, sometimes only partially, usually with an induction of well-being and contentment. That's the definition. How crazy is that? Like, how do you sum that up for a patient, right? <laughs> I don't even know what some of those words are. <laughs> so I ask my students on this slide, the first thing that I put up is a picture that I got off the internet of fireworks in the shape of a heart, right? And I say, how do you define orgasm? How do you talk about orgasm with your patients? How do you put this fireworks in the shape of a heart 
into words where you can ask somebody if they're able to have a climax. And so many women struggle with this, where we know that there are women who are unable to have an orgasm. And orgasmic disorder is defined as either the persistent or recurrent delay in or absence of orgasm. And 24% of American women have a delay, about 20% have absence of orgasm. So for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to have a climax, we know that there's so many things that need to happen in terms of having the ability to allow our mind and our body to relax enough to be able to allow this transient sensation of vasocongestion release and well-being and contentment to happen, right? So I talk a lot, especially with women, when we're struggling, our sensation is largely respondent to the erogenous zones on the body, right? So whether it's clitoral stimulation, either from manual stimulation, oral stimulation, or penetrative sex, we have a lot of different erogenous zones in our body. But the ability to relax and climax is definitely within our, it's our mind-body connection. It's between our ears, what's going on. If we are distracted, if we are concerned about our body image, if we are worried about the laundry, if we are thinking that the baby's going to wake up or the toddler is going to come in, or we've got a deadline at work. Anything that pulls us away from our physical sensations and our ability to connect our mind and our body is definitely going to be distracting for being able to relax and enjoy sex. So however a woman is able to define, are they able to relax and enjoy sex is good enough for me. If they are going through the motions or they're not getting pleasure, then I encourage women to figure out what it is that gives them pleasure. Carve out some time where they can do some self-exploration, where they're in a safe place, where they're not feeling judged, where they don't have to worry about the laundry being piled up. We don't allow ourselves that as often. I think for those of us who have male partners, that male climax is almost an automatic given for when we're intimate. And women being able to relax and enjoy sex and allow themselves to come to orgasm is something that we almost feel guilty for, or it's not an expectation. That said, I don't want women to put absorbent amounts of pressure and, and sex isn't fun unless they climax, because that that can also be a dangerous situation to get into if that's your goal. Yeah, I think that letting pleasure be the measure of your success. And I'm paraphrasing Emily Nagowski. There's a fabulous book for those of you who are nurse nerds out there or other nerds out there. Emily Nagowski is a fabulous writer. She's really funny as well. And she wrote a book that's called Come As You Are, which is so great. And there's so much information in there in terms of what we can do to help our patients improve their ability to relax and enjoy sex. So I strongly recommend either seeing Emily, she's got a great TED talk that's out there or reading the book or both or becoming her a fan club with Emily like I am. So Well, and to kind of bring this full circle, then what role do you see that pelvic floor concerns have with overall sexual health and or pleasure? Well, again, it's the elephant in the room, right? When I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with clinical practice and I was hoping to get back into pelvic floor and I knew that I had some skill in talking to women about sexual health, I asked one of the clinicians that I was working with uh, or that I wanted to work with, I said, who talks to your patients about sexual health? And she said, well, I don't talk about sex. I'm a surgeon. There's nothing I can do about that. And I said, this is the elephant in the room. So if women are struggling with symptoms and they are ashamed of what their body is no longer able to do or what it's currently doing, or they're unhappy with, I mean, body image plays such a big part into it. There's lots of research being done in terms of genital self-image and especially changes that happen in the postpartum period. This area that doesn't receive a lot of focus, especially if there are video cameras going and you're watching your baby crown out of your perineum. I mean, it's pretty miraculous that your body's able to do this, but there are also lots of changes. And some of that uh, sensuality may be diminished because 
because there are physiologic changes that happen to the pelvic floor that impact your ability to relax and enjoy sex. So really being able to have these conversations with women and understand your body is healing and your pelvic floor muscles can become stronger. And whether that's exercises that you do independently at home, I think that's where a really good pelvic floor assessment prenatally, post-birth, annually for women's exams is super important to reorient women. Kegel exercises are wonderful, but many women don't know if they're doing them correctly. So either providing them with feedback during a bimanual or there are some products that are out on the market where women can do biofeedback at home by inserting a small device into their pelvic floor. It syncs with your iPhone. It's pretty awesome that you can see if you're able to engage your pelvic floor, how long you're able to sustain a contraction. But I can't give enough shout out to my colleagues who are pelvic floor physical therapists who work with these problems day in and day out and who are able to assess women and men and give them insight into how their body's working and to give different exercises. Looking at the body holistically and understanding what the impact of pelvic girdle pain or low back pain, being able to assess are there ancillary muscles like the glute med that isn't firing enough to be able to support the pelvis or to be able to engage the pelvic floor correctly. There's so much more that can be done. And if we as clinicians think as a women's health MP, if I think that I can do it all, then I'm kind of misguided because I've got these great resources that are out there, my colleagues in female public medicine, my colleagues that are public floor physical therapists, to be able to provide the information and support and resources and exercises and surgery as necessary. Just recognizing that there's a whole big, beautiful world out there with lots of people who are trying to figure out the right, right way to help and provide the best care for our patients. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, pelvic floor physical therapists, sort of how you work with them in, in your current role and how providers may be able to locate pelvic floor physical therapists if they don't already know some? So uh, pelvic floor physical therapists are physical therapists who go through additional training to specialize in the role of the pelvic floor. We are very fortunate in the city of Chicago to have a robust team of physical therapists. And it's really interesting. I Once I started recognizing the purpose of multidisciplinary pelvic floor work, that's where I pull on my background in colorectal, my background in sexual health, my collegiality with my colleague in female pelvic medicine. I saw the great work across the board that pelvic floor physical therapists were able to do. I'm actually part of a group that's called the Chicago Pelvic Floor Research Consortium, which has been primarily pelvic floor physical therapists who come together to network, to discuss research, to talk about innovation within the care for pelvic floor. And it's been my honor as a nurse practitioner and a sexual counselor to sit on the board to work with this team. And, and we go through areas where it's, it's uh, really productive and other areas where, you know, our, our research and scholarship kind of falls off a little bit, but it's a nice network. And in the city of Chicago, if you Googled pelvic floor physical therapists and came up with the Chicago Pelvic Floor Research Consortium, we actually have a list serve of and a listing of being able to locate a pelvic floor physical therapist. I'm not sure how this works nationally. So for people who are listening outside of the Chicagoland area, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure if you put pelvic floor physical therapists in a Google search, you would be able to figure out who's doing what work in your area. Chicago just has a very robust group of professionals that are working on this and they're doing extraordinary things. I know that as a clinician, I I think your second part of the question was, how does a clinician do this? The challenge is trying to figure out what your patient's insurance will cover. So for example, when I was in my private practice in the urology clinic, pelvic floor physical therapy 
was very easy to refer my clients to because they had insurance, because it was within the hospital network. The pelvic floor physical therapists were two floors down from where we were in practice. So we had a nice working relationship. Now I am working in a federally qualified health center. And although, and I used to say where women don't have health insurance, but I have to give a shout out to the Affordable Care Act because the majority of my patients now currently are insured. It's just that the access to services such as physical therapy are limited. Um, so trying to find a public floor physical therapist who takes a medical card right now is more challenging. So that's something that I'm actively trying to work on. I'm only in clinical practice one day a week. So I haven't solved all the problems there yet. But fortunately, I've been able to start the teaching and to refer patients. There's a there's a great app on the phone. Am I allowed to share information with you guys on, on resources that are available for free? Yes. I My next question was actually going to be if you had some good resources for <laughs> providers to find out more about providing public floor care. So by sure. all means, share all the resources you have and we will, whatever you say, we will put in our show notes okay. so that people can do quick clicks to get straight to the uh, resource as well. Sure. So there is an app that I love on the phone that's free. That's called BWOM, B-W-O-M. And it is a pelvic floor app where you can, you answer some introductory questions in terms of your age and your height and your weight and what areas you're struggling with, whether it's incontinence or prolapse or constipation or helping your belly or helping with sex. I can't remember if there are more topics, but there's a whole list of things. And then there are customizable exercises that they show pictures and do a voiceover talking of how to engage your pelvic floor in different postures. And set a timer. So they'll say this next two minute exercise will help you to blah, blah, blah. And they talk you through doing it. It's like having a personal trainer without somebody's fingers in your vagina to make sure that you're doing it the right way. So it's, there are some limitations to that one, but it's something that's been great as that little reminder for my patients who want to be coached, who want to be encouraged to do their pelvic floor exercises and trying pelvic floor exercises in different positions allows you to engage muscles in different ways, whether you're using the strength of gravity or engaging your low back or your low belly or however they have you do them. But that's pretty fantastic. So I'm just going to have you pause quick. So this app is for a patient to download and use. It's not for a physician to download and give advice. This is something that patients can do, correct? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is me putting stuff in the hands of my patient so that they can continue the work that we've done during the exam. So if you tell somebody, yes, you're engaging your muscles the right way, or you need to they're engaging the muscles the right way, but their muscles are weak or they can't sustain their contraction or you just, your muscles seem great, but with anything, you know, we don't talk about pelvic floor muscle exercises. You know, we go to the gym and we exercise our biceps or we run and we exercise our heart, but we don't talk about pelvic floor muscles until somebody has a problem, until you've got incontinence or prolapse or pain or sexual dysfunction. And then we're like, oh, what happened down here? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of thing. Like we need to be able to assess these, to be able to encourage women to promote pelvic floor health and trying to find ways for women and men. I mean, I got to give a shout out to my male patients as well to be able to engage their pelvic floor muscles and keep them healthy so that we can, as a nurse practitioner, I am all about health promotion and disease prevention, right? We want to make sure that women and men know about their pelvic floor so that they can reduce their risk of having pelvic floor dysfunction. So BWOM, B-W-O-M, is a great app. And I will encourage my patients to, after they've done the pelvic floor exercises with me, 
or be able to engage their pelvic floor, then I'm able to put a tool in their hand that's free that they can take home and practice on their own. Another app that I really love that comes with a device that you need to buy is called LV, E-L-V-I-E. And I can't remember, I think it's about $200. It might be just under $200. It's a small device that gets inserted into your vagina. And then you, prior to inserting the device in your vagina, you, you can sync the device with your cell phone. So all of the data from your device gets transmitted to your cell phone. And so I hold my phone in my hand or place it where I can see it. And my cell phone will coach me through exercises and say, squeeze your pelvic floor, release your pelvic floor. And you can see it's a biofeedback machine. You can see at what level you're able to engage your pelvic floor. You're able to see how quickly you're able to relax your pelvic floor muscles to come back down to baseline. Um, We have many women who have tight pelvic floors. So that being able to release their pelvic floor and come back to baseline is super important. And we have many women who have very weak pelvic floor muscles. So being able to squeeze and sustain the hold can be very challenging for women. So this is a nice tool where motivated women who are able to comfortably insert this on their own and feel comfortable doing their own home exercises can really benefit from the impact of having their own personal trainer and the biofeedback to see if they're doing it the right way. Do you know, is this something that insurance covers or has this been typically out of pocket? You know, I've never written a prescription for it, to be honest with you. I, it, it is available over the counter. It's on Amazon. So I typically just encourage people to buy it on Amazon. And $200 is out of reach for many of my low-income women, but it's also out of reach for many women who are, yeah, it's $199 on Amazon right now. So it's called LV Kegel Exerciser and Pelvic Floor Muscle Exercise Tracker for Women. I think it's pretty fantastic. Cool. Any other resources that you have for providers for them to just find out more about pelvic floor care? Like any good websites or books? There are actually a lot of good books. In the city of Chicago, we had a wonderful organization that was a not-for-profit called the Women's Health Foundation. And the Women's Health Foundation was started by a woman named Missy Lavender. And Missy has shared her story, so I feel comfortable sharing it with you as well. She had her first baby at the age of 40. She was fit. She was healthy. And she had a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy. After she delivered her baby, she was struggling with problems with incontinence. And she wound up coming to see the clinician that I worked with, Dr. Linda Brubaker, who's a fantastic female public medicine and and reconstructive surgeon and a great researcher. She was actually dean at the School of Medicine at Loyola for a while and has been my mentor. So she came to Linda Brubaker and said, oh my gosh, nobody talked about pelvic floor. Nobody told me that this could be a problem. And Linda Brubaker said, Missy, a lot of my patients look just like you. So Missy Lavender made it her life's mission. She started up a not-for-profit called the Women's Health Foundation to talk about pelvic floor health and to get the word out to other women and men about the importance of pelvic floor. So they've done a lot of work within the community. They have established an exercise program called Total Control, which incorporates components of Pilates and yoga and a little bit of cardio to help support the pelvic floor and the core. So when we talk about the core, we're talking about both the deep belly muscles, so the transverse abdominal muscles, as well as the muscles that run right along the spine called the multifidi, and then the pelvic floor muscles. So your body's actually like a canister, right? So you've got your belly muscles, your back muscles, and your pelvic floor muscles that all help to provide support and function for your body. It's important to have all of these parts healthy. We can't just focus and isolate on pelvic floor without having strong belly muscles and back muscles. So they established this program called Total Control, which is now widely used to help people improve their pelvic floor health. They have a couple of great books that are out there. One that I think is really neat 
It's called Be the Queen of Your Pelvic Floor Region. But books geared at adolescents who need to learn about how to take care of their body. And I think that we often start this conversation way too late. Young women need to know about the changes that are happening both as they approach puberty and beyond and demystifying what goes on down there. I mean, I think we've been conditioned to be good girls, to not think about or talk about changes that happen in our in our pelvic floor and our vaginas. But their book is called Below Your Belt, How to Be the Queen of Your Pelvic Region. And that was put out in 2015 by Missy Lavender, Jenny Eim, and Jan Dolby. And it's pretty amazing. So I shared this with my daughters so that they've got a resource, so that they know that if they've got questions about what's going on in their body, that it kind of demystifies this whole idea of what happens in our genitals, what happens in our pelvic floor, what happens in our bellies, and why it's important that we know what's normal, know what changes can happen, and ask the appropriate questions and get help when we need to. Great. Now I want to check that out. I have a daughter. I mean, granted, she's a little young. She's only two and a half, but I'm going to have to (laughs) put that on my radar. Even with potty training, I mean, like, there are so many issues. Like, we don't talk about pelvic floor once kids are potty trained. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've got three children also. And I feel like all that time and attention is put on diapering and potty training. And then once they figure it out, you're like, all right, good for you. Hygiene aside, you talk about hygiene a little bit. But then it's pretty much like this is an area that we don't discuss. And that's really doing a disservice to women in our bodies and being able to have these open conversations. Now, I've got an, a teenager right now who is mortified anytime I try to bring up this conversation. But she knows that I'm here. She knows that I'm a resource. The book is on her bookshelf. And even if her mom isn't cool enough to to talk with about this, she's got resources. And, and I'm actually finding that she's more comfortable talking about other things, menstruation or sexual health things, because I am available and present and not squeamish and use the correct terms and, and recognize that this is something that many girls, again, it's that whole normalization, right? That this is not a weird thing. This is something that's part of your body and we need to be able to talk about. Well, I wanted to just go back a little bit to this postpartum time since that's such a sort of a big change for women if they've given birth vaginally or even by C-section, how would you envision an ideal six-week postpartum check kind of related to the pelvic floor? Like what should providers make sure that they're asking? Yeah, and actually I'm more enthusiastic and optimistic about the care that women are getting after a study that I just completed. So I did this study looking at postpartum sexual health for women with pelvic girdle pain, and we compared women without pain to women who had pain post-birth. We know that about half of women will have low back or pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy. And of those women, about 25% will continue to have pain post-birth. And some women don't have any pelvic girdle or low back pain during pregnancy, and then through their birth process have problems after birth. So I think asking those questions in terms of how are you feeling and specifically how is your low back, how is your pelvic floor, any problems with incontinence, any problems with constipation, any problems with pain, any problems with sexual dysfunction. Those are important questions to incorporate into the postpartum questions, the history that we take. When I uh, I had the ability to do a follow-up study and actually do qualitative interviews where I had almost an hour-long conversation with women who struggled with pelvic pain after delivery. And I was able to ask them about their adaptation to motherhood and their expectations for their sexual health and their ability to communicate with their partners. And one of the questions that I asked them was about how their healthcare provider interacted with them. And did they have an opportunity to ask questions and get information and referrals 
tools as necessary for their pain. And overwhelmingly, women said that, yes, they were actually able to share this information and get the good guidance that they needed. Now, many of the women that I was interviewing had midwifery care, which is pretty fantastic. So perhaps it's my colleagues in in midwifery who are asking the right questions and doing the referrals. But I think that I was overwhelmingly surprised that there were providers who were asking the right questions and giving referrals. Some of the women that I spoke with just didn't feel comfortable offering this information, thought this was just part of the normal birth process. And it was it was anticipated that their bodies were going to be different post-birth and they were just going to have to struggle with this pain. And they didn't offer this information, nor were these questions asked for by their provider. So some of the women in my study in this qualitative piece felt like this was just the way it was. This is just what was going to happen. They didn't seem like they were anticipating that their pain would get better. They just felt like this is what it is. Whereas other women were more proactive, asking questions, getting referrals to pelvic floor PT, or doing home practices of yoga or other things that they were trying to be more proactive about. Postpartum women, asking them to go into twice a week for six week therapy, that can be overwhelming when the biggest accomplishment, you know, might be getting a shower that day or putting on, you know, getting out of your pajamas. How do we ask women with a newborn to get out of the house to go be proactive on their pelvic floor? I mean, the, those are some big challenges that we have. In France, I'm not sure if this is still true, but women in France get a year of pelvic floor physical therapy post-birth. Like it's across the board. It's just incorporated into their care. And it may be the French value pelvic floor health and sexual health more than us in in the United States? I don't know. And when I brought that up to one of the physicians that I work with, she's like, well, where's the evidence behind that? How do we know if it's helpful? We need really to have evidence to guide what, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And should we only be referring women with problems or should we be referring everybody? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I haven't seen a longitudinal study, you know, looking at the impact. There's some great pelvic floor physical therapists who do really wonderful research and look at sexual health and look at incontinence. Dr. Kari Bo is incredible and a groundbreaker in terms of a lot of the research that's out there from the pelvic floor physical therapy side. But I think that we need some good longitudinal studies to help us understand and to get insurance companies to buy into this, right? Because if you don't have the evidence, then it's harder to get the coverage or the expectation from the clinicians that referrals are necessary and should be covered as part of postpartum care. Yeah, I like how you brought that up about not only it might be important to bring up pelvic floor physical therapy, but some women that might be a huge barrier is time, which I'm sure it is, especially if you live in an area where you may have to drive really far to see a physical therapist. For sure. That's why I love these apps on the phone and ways to increase the patient accountability and responsibility for being able to do this. I think we've got a lot of women who are super motivated, but don't know how or don't know where to go or can't get there or getting out of the house when you've got a toddler and a newborn and other responsibilities, you know, might be more challenging. Well, and I think what's great about the app, the BWOM app that you brought up is just that, that you don't have to try and get your newborn out of the house to do this. And I know that when we were also doing our market research in these situations, women would follow up that I had to try and find resources on the internet and Google stuff. And it was through Googling that they found uh, support groups of other women who are experiencing mm-hmm. the same things. And then they were able to find out about the pelvic floor physical therapist. But on the other hand, you know, you have doctors who are like, uh, Dr. Google, they don't like that patients 
or not maybe that they don't like it, but you know, patients come in with the treatment they already want. But what was interesting we found was that for Google in these situations, it was empowering and helpful to them that they were able to seek some answers and get some care. So I think that this app, if we could tell every doctor out there. (laughs) And nurse practitioner and midwife. Yeah, that yes, yes, doctor, midwife, every any care provider that this app is free and available to women, I think that that would be great, incredible. Yeah, I think that there is a wealth of information out there and some of it is misinformation and some of it may be more anxiety provoking than what is it? I mean it's not going to replace a great clinician who asks good questions and does a nice physical and is able to come up with an assessment and work collaboratively through patient-centered care to Mm -hmm. develop a plan, right? So I I think that there's room for people to be educated and empowered, but I think that their healthcare with a compassionate clinician is going to be only strengthened by the fact that women are getting information about their bodies and they're feeling empowered to ask these questions. So I hear what you're saying, and I know that there are a lot of people out there that shake their heads and say, oh gosh, but our days of, yes, doctor, anything you say, doctor, should be gone. I mean, we should be actively participating in our health and recognizing what's normal and what's not normal. And that takes a lot of education. That takes a lot of reconditioning and shifting the paradigm in healthcare. I have worked with very, very highly resourced, educated patients. And I have also worked with very, very undereducated, under-resourced, uninsured patients, right? And as a clinician, my goal is that everybody leaves that appointment with me understanding a little bit more about their body at the level that they're at so that they can take some initiative and some autonomy in terms of their care and that every plan that I do is patient-centered so that they're involved in this care. And it's not just them coming in and saying, this is what I want, but it's me as a clinician using my skills in my history taking, my diagnostics, my you know knowledge of what resources are available so that we can provide the best possible patient-centered care. That's terrific. Yeah. So we usually like to ask a final question, and you've mentioned these along the way during the entire interview, but do you have any final communication tips for providers who provide postpartum care or pelvic floor care? I mean, the folks that are already doing pelvic floor stuff, it's kind of preaching to the choir, right? So I'm hopeful that the people that are actively working in pelvic floor are recognizing that there's a lot of good that they're doing. And I'm so grateful for those experts that are out there. For the general practitioner who is caring for women, I would encourage all of us to get more comfortable with our own preconceived ideas about what what we know and what we don't know and how to comfortably ask questions for women and normalize pelvic floor issues so that People can feel comfortable sharing with us their intimate concerns, their ideas about what feels good and what doesn't feel good, where they think they should be on their healing journey, and being able to really do that health promotion, disease prevention, and anticipatory guidance so that women aren't left feeling like they don't have support from their healthcare provider. And even if, you know, everything might be great at the six-week check because she hasn't resumed sexual activity, she knows that she's got a confidant and somebody who is looking out for her optimal health when she does resume sex and if it's not comfortable and she knows that she can communicate with her clinician. And that clinician, it's okay not to have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I can ask some good questions and I can use my resources to figure out who else might be helpful or where else might this patient be able to turn so that they can get the care that they need. Right. 
So you have talked a lot about that when a woman comes in at their six-week check, if they haven't had sex, that a lot of times the conversation ends there. But, and then you also talk about anticipatory guidance. So what anticipatory guidance do you have for the woman who maybe hasn't had sex yet at that six-week appointment, but will in the future? You know, and I think we take it for granted that women who are of childbearing age are going to be interested in sex. And you know, I allow women to recognize that their body has changed and their priorities have changed. And especially for moms who are breastfeeding, breasts, which at one point in her life may have been a very sensual part of her body, now have a very different function as she is nurturing her newborn, right? So allowing women to recognize that yes, their body has changed and physically may feel very different. I think it's important to be able to promote intimacy an intimacy between a couple does not necessarily involve putting a penis inside the vagina. I also never assume that my patients are heterosexual, but, you know, allowing, uh, having that conversation about like what entails intimacy and having that contact and being able to reconnect as a couple is super important. So whether or not they're physically having penetrative sex or not is not the issue. And I think once you give women that permission to recognize that their sexual health is changing, that's super important. But another thing, especially for the breastfeeding moms, when you're breastfeeding, the estrogen in your body is concentrated in your breasts so that you're making milk for this baby. Okay. And that definitely changes the ability of your vagina to produce a lubricant, which allows for a more ease of penetration. Okay. So especially for young, healthy women who her, who were hormonally imbalanced prior to pregnancy, they may never have used a lubricant in their life. And they may think that that's only for postmenopausal women or for certain sex toys, right? However, there are so many different lubrications that are out on the market and it is easy and accessible to buy lube. There's no shame in using it. There are also products that you can use at home like sesame oil or coconut oil or olive oil that are available. They're not as great for women who are using condoms for sexually transmitted infection prevention or for contraception. But allowing people the possibility of using a lube if they need to, to make sex more enjoyable is something that many young women haven't, haven't thought about. So especially those first few times that you're having sex after having a baby, especially if you're breastfeeding, that might be a great suggestion for women. The other thing is just really making sure that there's good communication between partners, right? Emily Nagowski goes into this as well, that you may be sexually stimulated and turned on, but your genitals may not be producing a lubricant. It does not mean that you're not turned on because you're not lubricating. It means that your estrogen is working elsewhere. So you have to be able to ask a woman if she is turned on and what is working and how comfortable she is and if it's okay and if it feels great. But good partnerships, good sexual relations includes communication. So being able to get comfortable, ask the questions, verbalize what your needs are. Those are all skills that we can empower our patients with. Excellent. Yes, I love that. So Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through your communication with your patients. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end today? Well, I can't, I can't begin to give enough credit to the University of Michigan for their sexual health program. And I encourage anybody who is a, a nerd like me that wants additional training, especially to improve the care that they provide their patients, to be able to go out and find some resources. Also, Nurse Practitioners and Women's Health, the organization that I belong to, has a seminar every year. It might be biannually, actually, twice a year, 
where they provide information for clinicians on female sexual health. So there are lots of good resources out there. Part of what stifles the conversation is a clinician really feeling like there's nothing that they can do about it. So if I ask the question, I'm going to open up this big box of mess and either recognizing that you have limitations both in your time and your talents and your skill level and addressing those through further education or identifying resources within your community. But I think that it's nice to know that programs are out there and that you can go back and learn more or you can recognize your limitations and figure out who knows what and refer them to there. Um, There is something called ASECT, which is the Association of Sexual Therapists and Educators and Counselors, A-S-S-E-C-T. But you can find sexual therapists and counselors. So you can find a clinician in your area who can do the sex therapy or the sexual counseling or the sex ed. And that is another great resource for people who, and clinicians who may not have the time or the ability to provide this direct care. Thank you so much for that organization. And thank you so much for your time today. It was really interesting. Yay, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook.